All right, let me get the kids up here, please. Young people, come up and sit right up here, and I will join you momentarily. All right. All right, come on up. Make sure I don't sit on anybody. Excuse me, I'm sorry. All right, guys, how you doing? You heard what? Your heart is pounding? Imagine how I feel when I'm up here. Why is your heart pounding? I have to watch the Dalmatians. Yeah, I watched the Dalmatians when I was a kid. Yeah, I spotted that movie. All right, I have something for all of you. Uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to tell you about it first, and then I'm going to give you one. Yeah, everybody's going to get one, okay? Yeah. Okay. So this is a friend of mine. His name is Iggy. Can you all say hello to Iggy? Wave to Iggy. Hi, Iggy. Hi, Iggy. Yeah, this is Iggy. This might be a little hard to see, but Iggy is interesting because he's smiling, right? Smiley face. You see that? But what happens when I pull his face like that? Is he smiling? Now he looks kind of like, eh, because you know why? Because we don't like to be stretched. And Iggy doesn't like to be stretched. And so I'll give, you want to hold Iggy? Why not? We got a car? Okay, That's hold on. That's your bumblebee? In a minute, I'm going to give you an Iggy to put in there, but not yet. All right. So, you know, with faith, God stretches us. He gives us new things to make us trust him. And we don't like to be stretched. And you can ask your mom and dad and say, do you like to be stretched? And they'll say, no, I don't like to be stretched. So can I see Iggy? So Iggy, when he is stretched, he's like that. But we have to learn that God is making us stronger in our faith. So when you get your Iggy and you take your Iggy back to your seat, your parents will be in control of your Iggy. But um, you can stretch your Iggy. You can do whatever your parents will let you do. But just remember that... God does like to stretch us, kind of like I'm stretching Iggy, right? Now, we know that children's sermons are actually for the adults. All right. These are actually for the adults? Well, the message is. You made the Iggy after our friend Iggy. Yeah, you have a friend Iggy? Wow, I do not. All right, so my uh, gentlemen here are going to help me hand these out. Everybody's going to get one. And uh, so... Here's the bag of Iggy's, and these guys will hand them out, and you can go back to your seats and be with your mom and dad or whoever, and uh, it'll be a really stretching experience. Hey, there you go. Can you take that one? I have a car. Hey, you want your transformer back, or do I get to keep it? Thank you, sir. All right, thank you. Would anybody else like an Iggy? There you go, ma'am. That's your own personal Iggy. Hey, Ian, you can uh, take the rest if you wish. All right, no problem, in case you're under Iggy. All right, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 5? Acts chapter 5, the plot thickens. Uh, This is one of those passages, it's a little heavy, 
And uh, so therefore, I want to I start you out with something a little different. But uh, remind me to pray when I finish that. So if you're wondering why in the world this, uh, well, first of all, I don't have any actual photos from Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. All the photos were lost, right? Uh, so I thought this was kind of cool of uh, this monkey realizing that he's kind of stealing this drink and everything else. He's kind of looking around at the plot thickens, which we'll get into. And I thought I'd share this. I saw this this week, and I thought it was funny, if you don't mind laughing in church. Two hillbillies were sipping shine on the front porch when a truck went past loaded up with rolls of sod. I'm going to do that when I win that there lottery, announced hillbilly number one. Do what? Asked hillbilly number two. Send my lawn out to get mowed. kind of funny. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, all you do and thank you for your word and just pray that you will uh, guide us today as we look at your word and help us to follow it and understand it and, and be able to apply it to our lives and we just thank you for the incredible story of the book of Acts. So we are excited to be in it and we just give it to you in Jesus name. Amen. So we can't look at Acts chapter 5 without backing up a few verses and looking at Acts chapter 4 verse 32. Uh, so if you'll I know you're in Acts 5, but just go to the left a little bit. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. This is one of those unfortunate chapter breaks to me because I think all of this goes together. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So it was a full package. It was the unity, it was prayer, it was love, it was helping one another. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So they're taking care of one another. Now, this is not mandated. It was their choice. They could do what they wanted. But uh, this is what they did to help each other. Why did they need to do that so much? Because of this. By the way, they're in Jerusalem. Temple Mountain Homes is where they're meeting. We're going to see the audience as Ananias and Sapphira, the church and beyond. But I want you to see this uh, pie chart here. In this culture at this time, these were the economic classes that you had, upper, middle, and lower. About 10% was middle class, only 4 to 7% was upper class, and everybody else was lower class, which was why there was such a great need. Isn't that amazing? No wonder they had to help each other. Many of the people in the community were poor and persecution was going to break out and wherever persecution breaks out, like a group I heard in Vietnam when I was there of them, they, uh, they basically, uh, they're desperate for survival. And by the way, we have Barnabas introduced, you know, he'll go on the missionary journeys with Paul. So we uh, see in the book of Acts, Luke liked to foreshadow things and he's foreshadowing here with the mention of Barnabas. And so we got this incredible atmosphere of people selling things and, and helping the body out. And now we're going to have assault and assault on the church's wholeness in chapter 5. So look with me and see how Satan attacked the church through the back door by manipulating a couple named Ananias 
and Sapphira. Verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, the, he, the Greek here means kind of joint knowledge, she knew he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. The problem is not that he gave only part of it to the church. The problem is that he lied to the church about it and claimed that he was giving the whole property. What would make someone do that? Well, everybody wants to look good, and you know, in the early church, this would kind of be the equivalent of I'm going to put my coat and tie on, and I'm going to go to church and act like Mr. Super Spiritual, and it's a pride thing, and so Ananias does that. I mean, otherwise, why even bother? And the word here to keep back is also the word used in the Old Testament translation for uh, in Joshua chapter 7 with a man named Achan. When the Israelites came into the promised land, uh, Moses led them up to the Jordan River, but he could not cross, so Joshua leads them across. And the final score is Israelites 31, the other nations 1. Because what happens, they take over Jericho, the walls fall down, and then they go to the battle of Ai, and they're victorious except that this man Achan has taken spoil in Jericho. And that causes Israelites to actually lose the battle of Ai instead of win it. And it's a verb that's used there and it's used here for financial fraud. And Achan lost his life. So now we know why he was Achan. And in verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? By the way, this is one of the verses we use to, uh, as a text to show that the Holy Spirit is God. Why has, have you lied to the Holy Spirit and kept back for yourself part of the proceeds? And so the word here is the word for financial fraud. Uh, and Ananias, Satan inspired you to do this. And in verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, you had full control of it. You could have done whatever you wanted. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it then that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God, God the Holy Spirit. So Peter comes across kind of as like a prophet here with knowledge that God has given him. And he confronts him, and it raises the issue of integrity. I have always thought about doing this. I have not done it this morning, so don't panic, but I've thought about bringing in an egg in front of you. Now, wouldn't that have been fun to have given the children raw eggs this morning? I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. And if I took an egg and I took a pen and I poked a hole in the egg, I would say to you, this is basically an intact egg, is it not? Would you eat that egg? No, because its integrity has been violated and because you don't know what kind of stuff has gotten in there and you, as you know, don't mess around with chickens. You don't want raw chicken. So that's kind of the issue of integrity. Integrity is the idea of wholeness. It's not just the issue that we don't sin. Like, integrity for God is not just that he doesn't sin. He never would have sinned. That was not even on the horizon for God. But integrity is his wholeness of character in every respect. It all ties together. His love, his justice, all of it goes together. And that's what integrity is. And so integrity is a very high standard because you're talking about the whole leg together and not cracked and not broken and not penetrated by a needle. And so what has happened is Ananias has violated his integrity, but he has also violated the integrity of the church. See, this isn't just a private sin. 
This is something where basically he has brought scandal to the church. He has brought sin into the church, and God has to deal with this. It was an act against fellowship. It was an act against the fellowship of the church and the wholeness of the church. It was against the integrity of the body, and all it could do would be to bring disrespect and suspicion. Many would be tainted. It was dangerous to the community and dishonored God. The land was totally theirs. They could have done what they wanted to. The original sin, though, was pride, and that's what we see here. Satan entered his heart. The desire for human praise was more important to them than the affirmation that God would give them. And so they commit financial sin and they lie. It's an act of rebellion and disobedience to God. And it shows a staggering lack of respect for the church community. And it's a mockery of the vast majority of the church because the vast majority were poor. And so here they do that. What a mockery that is of all those who were poor because most of them were. Imagine what would have happened if they actually stole money from the church. They didn't even technically steal money from the church. They just lied about what they had. They misrepresented, and it's going to cost them their lives. So in verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Not only there in the building but or wherever they were, but beyond. The story of Acts is just so interesting and sometimes it's very humorous if you will and so I think verse 6 is kind of kind of funny in a way look at this the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him Ananias is confronted falls dead guys come in wrap him up and carry him out now you talk about a church business meeting it's uh, it's I mean it's kind of humorous but it scares the snot out of me but this is God's standard. Now, I just came out of a situation, I will not go into detail, but because we're broadcasting, but there was embezzlement in the church and we had to deal with it and we had to process this for months and months and months. It was horrific. They didn't even embezzle from the church. All they did was lie. And this is how God deals with it. Now, why? Does God kill everybody who lies? No, but the church is starting out. And so God is sending a message here in a major way. But he is not going to put up with this. This is what happens with church scandal, by the way. Just imagine you were not in the room. And so somebody texts you and says, you'll never believe what just happened at church. The word started to get out. I'm sure the gossip spread. But everybody learned what had happened. But in church scandal... You have to react to what's going on. Not everybody understands. The gossip engine goes in overdrive, and a church can shatter from the pressure. So imagine how you would have felt for the next few hours as you sat there and watched this happen in front of you. I I can't emphasize that enough, how dramatic and crazy that would have been. Imagine what you would have felt for the next few hours. Wow. So that is the story of Ananias. So verse 7 After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, Sapphira, not knowing what had happened. And this is so classic in verse 8, Peter, classic uh, interrogator. He said to her, 
tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Trap set. And she said, yes, for so much. Lie stated. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And the plot thickened. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I've never been in a, I've been in churches where people collapse, but not for this reason. I've never been in a church where God brought divine discipline on someone and they died in front of the church and they had to be carried out. But that doesn't mean that God cares about integrity any less. And when I preach this, it's not like me preaching at you. It's me bringing the whole body together to look at the Word of God and say, what does it say here? How do we understand it? Makes you wonder a few things. For example, um, in verse 7, when uh, she came in, I wonder if the body came into the group regularly, that they were constantly hanging out together. And I wonder if Ananias and Sapphira were actually in the original 120 believing group in Acts chapter 1. I wonder that. We don't know. Or were they in a group of newbies? Either way, as tight as the group was, this plot was pernicious, and it was dealt with. And she affirmed she was in on the conspiracies. The word for tested here, you have tested, is frequently used in Acts. So like Israel, this couple has tested God by rejecting his goodness, by denying that their action mattered, that righteousness mattered. And the judgment is like Nadab and Abihu. Remember them in Leviticus chapter 10 because Nahab and Abihu, they died dramatically and it's God's way of showing that as we form this new community, we will not allow sin in the community. We will not allow rebellion. God's people are called to holiness and are accountable to God for it. And so the word had great fear. By the way, the word for church here is the first of 23 references in the book of Acts to the church. And right now it refers to the fellowship gathering. And uh, it's just shocking to see what happened. So now... I mean, that obviously leaves you kind of stunned. And I'd like to work you quickly through the rest of the chapter because I want to come back to the issue of the, uh, the accountability here. In verse 12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all gathered together in Solomon's portico in the temple area. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. I can't give you a number. It's now multitudes. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them, and they might be healed. So these are Jesus kind of experiences. And the people also gathered for the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. It's just amazing. So let's take a look at this. Um, I don't have an exact number. Nobody does. Only the Lord knows. But what if the church multiplied so much that there's now 20,000 followers? Wouldn't that be amazing in this story? 
So in a very short time, that would be a ratio of basically 160 to 1. For every original uh, person in the body of Christ, now we have 160 newbies. And so our potluck gets bigger and bigger and bigger, doesn't it? I would have to buy a lot more of uh, Iggy's, wouldn't I? Everybody got your Iggy? All right, good deal. So put it this way, if FRAC has some 140 people, which we tend to, that means we would quickly swell to 22,400. Boom. Over 20,000 people. It's pretty amazing what the Holy Spirit did through the body of believers who yielded to him. And I have to ask the question, did this massive growth occur because the church actually enacted discipline related to integrity? And I think so. In fact, I would say that a church that will not exercise its moral and spiritual obligation before the Lord to confront sin in its members or have its leaders repent if necessary is morally and spiritually weak. And maybe the reason the American church is so often weak is not just because it doesn't pray enough, but because it doesn't exercise corrective action where appropriate. This is a lot easier to preach than it is to do. The fault lies within all of us. And I don't think you can move forward toward any kind of change without taking a sober look at your expectations as a church, and often that's described as the church covenant. Uh, we dealt with that before, not here, but before, and it was like, you know, what should be in the church covenant? What are we actually expecting believers to adhere to? Now, I want to say... You know, like Paul said, I'm the world's worst sinner. There's nothing in what I'm saying that says I'm any better than anybody else. I mean, I know I'm not, so don't take that wrong. I just want to explore the Word of God with you and get you to think a little bit about this. And uh, by the way, on the growth report, remember the day of Pentecost? Uh, we had first 120 people, and then how many came to Christ? 3,000. Woohoo! Then it goes up to 85, and now we're up apparently to 20,000 or thereabouts. Isn't that amazing what God's done? But I want to shift gears now. This is get a little heavy. I want to talk about what's often called church discipline. And I've decided I don't like the phrase church discipline because it sounds like, it sounds nuclear. It's like, okay, we're going to take a gun, and we're going to blow you away because you've done wrong, and that's it, you're toast, you're finished. The better way to put it is, I think, corrective action. So I'm going to, if I say church discipline, just say, Sid, remember, you're going to say corrective action so you can correct me. And I want to say, as I get into this, I want to say very strongly, there is no issue at FRAC that I am trying to address through this. This is not a subtle way to send somebody a message here, okay? We do not have a church discipline issue that I know of, all right? We good? And if you go out and spread the gossip that Sid was talking about because we got an issue at, church, at FRAC with church discipline, then we'll put you under corrective action. And we should, because the Scripture make it very clear the worst things we do are the things we do with our mouth and the gossip. Gossip is every much a sin as murder and adultery. But you don't hear about that in church. But I'm starting to preach now. Sorry, the Baptist is coming out of me. So let's talk about corrective action. Nobody likes to talk about this subject for a lot of reasons. One is the name itself. It's nuclear in tone. It's a smackdown. Actually, you're looking at it the wrong way. It's the other way. It's about producing godliness in the church. 
It's about having wholeness and godliness. Number two, it's the fear that it may happen to me or us. If I start talking about church discipline or corrective action, it's like, they're going to come after me. That's what we think. Uh, the great fear that the church will be sued. And also the cop out, you know, we're not perfect. We should just love them. In both situations I've seen in the last two years in my interims, in both cases, it was said we should just forgive the person, bring them back, let them preach again. And it's like, you know, we had to deal with that. In a previous situation I was in, someone embezzled over $40,000 from the church. It was understood that probably they were embezzling every year, and if we investigated any further, we'd have to take them to the district attorney to be prosecuted. And yet some people said, let's bring him back in the church and let him preach again, because he paid it back. It blew my mind. But again, this is not trying to be self-righteous. It's just saying this is a tough topic. If a church refuses to exercise corrective action, it is saying, in effect, that godliness in the body is not a priority. If a church refuses to exercise corrective action, it is saying that godliness in the body is not a priority. Do I hear an amen? <laughs> so I had a professor when I was in my doctoral program uh, from Dallas. He was a theology professor, but also he had been a prosecuting attorney in Seattle, King County. And he had become an expert on church discipline. He had written journal articles, and we processed the legal sides of this and everything else. And as you know, I come out of a military and law enforcement family, uh, have a lot of friends who are law enforcement, and I'm often thinking of things in law enforcement uh, terms, and that will actually inform us today. So hang on for the ride here. We're talking about the health of the body. This is not the only passage on corrective action. A very famous one is Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if any is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So again, the goal is restoration. It's corrective action with great caution and sobriety. So now I'm going to walk you through using slides. That'll take a little of the pressure off, maybe. And I'm going to walk you through the steps of corrective action. And I want you to think about this. Number one is standard. In other words, you have to establish a standard. You have to have a starting point. Now, let's think about this. Do you ever discipline your children? When you had children, did you discipline them, or if you have them? I mean, yes or no? This is not a trick question. What do you discipline them on? I told you not to do this. I established a standard. What you did is wrong, and you did not adhere to that, so I'm going to punish you. Now, my dad was a military uh, veteran of three wars, and so uh, my punishment when I was a child tended to be military. So my dad would take off his Air Force belt, and, uh, and I would get it. And then when my mother spanked me, she would make me go out and get the switches and peel the uh, leaves off the switch, you know, pull my pants down, and then I would get it. I did not have a real positive perspective on spanking, but I got it a lot, and I deserved it probably a lot for a lot of things I did, such as the time when I was playing with Dad's golf clubs without his permission, and I flung it up on the roof, and I was embarrassed, didn't want to say anything. And several weeks later, he sees a rusting golf club up on the roof, and I got spanked. And there were other times, but we got to move on. 
So one thing you could do is to have a church covenant because the church covenant basically says these are our expectations of our behavior as a body. Now, to my knowledge, I have not found it in our documents. We do not have an official church covenant at FRAC. Some people feel like church covenants are pretty heavy-handed and controlling and we shouldn't have that. You know, fine, that's a debate for another time. But I'm going to say that if you're going to take corrective action, then you've got to have a pretty clear standard before you take corrective action. And what a covenant would do would be to, to itemize these are expectations. We've distilled the expectations we have as a body. We're stating this. You're going to sign it, and we're going to agree on it. And if we violate it, then that's where church discipline comes in. I was uh, having dinner with a, a family in Georgia last year, and they told me the church they came from in Virginia, actually, they had not only a church covenant, but every year you had to re-sign the covenant and renew your membership in the church. And there are churches that do that. Now, I was an uh, interim pastor of a church that had 2,000 on the rolls. Because, you know, I mean, if it's a Baptist church, you can die, and 500 years later, you're still on the ro rolls with voting power. And so part of that was, how do we clean this mess up? So anyway, you get the idea. Number two is discovery. We discover an issue. Uh, in that situation, the wife of the guy who committed the crime actually squealed to a staff member and everything fell out from there. But we discover an issue, then what do we do? Number three, confronting. We confront. We go through the Matthew 18 sequence of, you know, you go to the person, confront, you bring another person, and then eventually it may go before the body of Christ if there's not been any kind of response. So you have a process of confronting. Nobody likes to confront. There are very few people who love to confront, and those who do, I'm kind of suspicious of, right? So this is hard for a church. It doesn't sound loving. Next would be sufficient disclosure of the sin. In other words, this not only happened, but I'm not holding back. I'm not lying to you and telling you I paid it back because I saw I made a mistake. I'm admitting that, yes, I was confronted with this full amount, and I am responding to that, and I have sinned. And then would be repentance. Repentance. Confessing the sin, turning around, seeking restoration. Which gets to number six, restoration of the person. And this is a process. It's not immediate. You know, we've seen way too many people confess publicly and like, everything's fine because I got up on TV and I confessed, and then their life is a wreck after that. Which is why it's good not to take a new believer and put them on camera. But uh, anyway, restoration, the expectations are monitored and must be met. This takes time, perhaps counseling, uh, limited function, roles and responsibilities, being very careful with the role you give them. When I was uh, running the youth ministry like 30 years ago, one of the kids from our local church, uh, this is horrible, but molested the pastor's daughter and went into the judicial system, but he was... He was young, and they treated it that way. They pretty much slapped him on the wrist, which caused all sorts of havoc in the church and basically split the church. And the recidivism rate there is 100%. And he told me, he was a student of mine as well, he's like, I want to go into youth ministry. Well, exactly. He's like, there's no way I'm going to give you a reference for youth ministry. There is no way. So a part of it is just being realistic about the situation. And we're looking ultimately for healing of the person and thinking about what their role should be next. 
Ministers honestly don't like to do this. And I mean, every day I get emails from Ministry Watch and the Roy's Report and all this kind of thing of the latest scandals with ministries, ministry boards, committees, everything else, and it's disgusting. And I can think of a well-known church in our region where the pastor uh, sinned in a way that was seen on CNN across the nation, across the world, and he made a commitment to the elders. I not only stepped down, I won't pastor again, and before long, he's got a little home church right behind where we lived at the time. That's an integrity issue. And I'm not, you know, I'm casting stones here, but I'm just saying all of us have to look into ourselves and realize where we fall short. So I'm not trying to be superior, I'm not. But I want to say on healing, that often we focus on the healing for the person. It's like, oh, this minister, we need to restore him and everything else. But I just came out of a Southern Baptist church, and I've been tracking the Southern Baptist scandal and what the executive committee did. And it's like nobody talks about the ladies that were abused. It's all about let's protect the ministers. God help us if that's our standard of integrity. I have very strong feelings about this. Healing is not just for that ministry person so we can get him back in the pulpit. Get him out of the pulpit. Healing is for the ladies who were violated. And we don't take that seriously enough. And I don't see how the church can have a testimony if we take the ladies in our midst that have been abused and the children in our midst that have been abused and it's like, okay, we're going to push you off to the side. It's the preacher who counts. God help us. We've got to review our systems as a body of Christ. What about those who have been emotionally wounded or battered? And back in the day, we used to, because, I mean, I was there, and, I mean, I, I get it, you know, somebody would come in an accusation, and you'd be like, you know, you're probably not right. The ministry guys have good reputation. You know what we see now? When there's an accusation, if there's detail associated with it, you better take it seriously because there's a good chance they're right. And if you want to read about this in more detail and get to the point where you're nauseated, read, get, subscribe to Ministry Watch, which is done out of Colorado Springs, I think. The Roy's Report. I've got ministry friends who won't, who won't get the emails anymore just because they got so sick of reading about ministry scandal. Dude, no wonder the body of Christ has no testimony in the United States. And we just say, well, the unbelievers are pagans. They don't get it. They get it. They get it a lot more than you do. If a person does not respond, the correction is you have the standard, you have discovery, you confront, but let's say it doesn't go well. There's not full disclosure of the situation, which is a situation I just came out of, and or there's not repentance. Then we go into a new area. We go to Matthew chapter 18 in the progression there. We eventually take the person to the church. If the person refuses full disclosure and repentance, then we remove them from membership and we disassociate. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 through 15. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. The Amish do this and we laugh at them. And I'm not saying that their theology is right, don't get me wrong. But at least they practice something. Do you believe in accountability? 
you believe in accountability in the body of Christ? Do you believe in accountability for church members? Do you believe in accountability for pastors? And what I'm about to say, I prayed about, that doesn't make it right, but I have prayed, God, give me the words you want me to say. I'll tell you a story. Several years ago, I did a ride-along with the Colorado Springs Police Department. And I chose intentionally to go on a Friday night, the Sand Creek Division, to really see Colorado Springs. And it was actually a fabulous experience, but it was fascinating how from the middle of the afternoon on, the issues stair-stepped. They got worse and worse. We started with finding a couple of stolen cars, one of which had been reported on the news. The liar recognizes. Uh, then it got worse. And by the last situation, literally, we were looking for a guy with a gun in a neighborhood, and they, this is the one time they said, stay in the car, and they were pulling out their guns and their ARs in front of me. I mean, it was serious. But in the middle of the day, there was a report from Citadel Mall. I think I can share that. I won't go into a lot of detail, but some youths were kind of causing a ruckus in Citadel, and so the security team got rid of them. They got them outside, and then several squad cars came up, one of which I was in. And uh, so I'm watching all this go on, and we were there for about an hour. And understand a part of the process, you know, I came dressed professionally. I had to put on a bulletproof vest. It was a sunny day, and I've got my dark sunglasses so I'm just standing on the edge of the police, and these young guys were talking to the police and security and everything else, and they were going back and forth. And one of the guys wanted to be a YouTube hero, one of the teens. So he had his phone out filming the whole thing. And at the end of it, when it was over, he looked at me and said, who are you, some kind of sergeant or something? Now, I had kept my mouth shut the entire time. And I still kept my mouth shut. I didn't say a word. I just kind of grinned at him. And one of the policemen who had been in the second Marines uh, years ago, anyway, he told the guy, no, he is a citizen's watch guy. We have citizens who ride along with us to keep tabs on us and help keep us accountable. And that's what he is. I just smiled and we went on. You know, we talk about church members holding pastors accountable. We talk about holding church members accountable, and we should. But I want to remind you that at FRAC, our belief is that pastors and elders are equivalent. So I want to say that we also have to consider, and this is where things get touchy, we have to hold the elders individually and corporately accountable. And churches tend not to do that. Obviously, it's a very sensitive issue. But, you know, accountability is not saying, well, we're going to... We're going to rehire a pastor every year and so we're showing accountability nor is accountability saying we get to vote on elders every year and that satisfies the need for accountability that's absurd we are one united body at frack not elders in congregation and i think we need to take seriously also the question of how the body holds the elders accountable nobody talks about this i haven't heard a sermon on this how do we do that well, one thing I think you should consider is to consider something like, this is just a name I'm throwing out there, but something like a citizens committee in FRAC that basically can relate to the elders and when issues come up, can share with the elders and help the elders think through things. Right now, there's a lot going on. The elders are meeting every Wednesday night right now trying to process things. It's overwhelming, so we need your help. And it's not just elders and congregation. It's one body together. 
And I think the elders need you. And if I had to, to be very honest about frack, I think we hear too much about the elders and not enough about the body. Too much about the pastor. Brandon's going to give us an update next week on our financial situation. You'll want to come for that. We've got issues. We've got challenges. A church that used to have 600 people attending now has 140. That's 23% of what we had before. Well, we split the church intentionally, and that dropped the number way down. There's a lot of reasons. We had COVID. We had all of those kind of things. But this is a challenge to go through, and I think we need the input of the entire body. I don't think the elders alone can figure this one out. We need the entire body working on this. And I think that's biblical. We need you for more than funding. We need your wisdom. We need your insight. We need your involvement, your participation. And when you look at the scriptures, Ephesians chapter 4, the pastors and elders exist to equip the body for ministry. You guys are supposed to go out and do the ministry. We had a town hall this morning with the 20s and 30s, and the reason for that is because they didn't really fill out the uh, surveys, and also we know that they've got children that they need to have ministered to, so we wanted to have another session getting their opinions, and we did. We had a really good thing, but I think one thing that came out of it is just how overwhelming ministry is these days for all of us. We're all so busy, and to be an elder, it's like, where are you going to meet? Are you going to lead a small group? Are you going to teach? I mean, it's just overwhelming, and they're doing it you know, in the freedom they have in the evenings. So it's just overwhelming. So I think as we come together as a body, I'm just being really honest today, I think we need to come together and realize all of us are supposed to minister. We all need to help each other. We need to all hold each other accountable in every direction. And I think we'll have the whole body of Jesus Christ that we're supposed to have. I don't know if anybody would dare give an amen right now. But... This is what God has put on my heart, but I'll blame myself if it goes bad. Father, thank you for all you have done in our lives. Thank you for all you mean to us. We're looking for a church that honors and glorifies you. We're looking for a church that is whole, is complete. We've had challenges, Father, and it's easy to get up and preach about, but it's harder to deal with. So give us the wisdom to deal with the things we need to. And honestly, Father, give us the wisdom to just pull back from things that just aren't worth the time. Because if we do all of this and we're just all stressed out and we're not resting in you, then I think we've gone in the wrong direction. So I pray that FRAC would be a place of rest, of recovery, of joy for all and for tremendous relationships that we may glorify you and bring honor to your name in Jesus' name.